Well, these chapters, starting in chapter 13 of John, going through uh, chapter 16, uh, are powerful because, again, these were the last words that Jesus shared with his disciples before he was betrayed and arrested and crucified. And Jesus knew after he was going to... uh, to, to go to the cross and die, he knew he would rise from the dead, and he knew he'd be on the earth for, uh, for a few weeks with his disciples, but then he knew he was going to ascend back to the Father. And so what Jesus is doing here in these chapters is he's preparing his disciples to walk by faith. He knew he would not forever be physically present with them. He was going to ascend back to the Father. And so he's preparing them to live the Christian life when he was no longer physically present which makes these passages directly relevant to us, right? Because Jesus is with us, but he's not physically present with us. He's at the right hand of God. He's spiritually present. And so we've got to walk with him, not by sight, like they did in those three years of Jesus' public ministry. We have to learn to walk with Jesus by faith, right? Now, one day when Jesus comes back, our faith will become sight. What a day that will be. But until then, we have to live the Christian life by faith. Jesus is present, but we can't see him. So how are we to live the Christian life by faith? Well, that's a lot of what these chapters are about. And we've come to chapter 15, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, and I believe one of the most important passages on the Christian life in the Bible. I believe this this section is very, very significant, very, very compelling, very, very important about what it means to live the Christian life, how you live the Christian life, what the Christian life is all about. And and if you miss the truths here in John 15, you will not experience the kind of fruitful, God-honoring life that God intends for you to have. And so again, very important passage, and and it centers around the idea of abiding in Christ. Let's just read verses 1 through 11 of John 15. Then I'm going to come back and just kind of walk you through this passage. And then after we're done... I'll, I'll take some questions if you have any questions, because this is liable to raise some questions. But look there with me, John 15, verse 1. Jesus speaking here says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. That's a very important verse. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so, watch this, prove to be my disciples. What is the proof that you are a disciple of Christ? That you bear fruit. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my Love. That's an important phrase. We'll get to that later. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How many of you want fullness of joy? Well, this passage 
tells you how to experience fullness of joy. And so let's just walk through this this idea of abiding in Christ, John 15, under four different headings. First of all, I want to just discuss the meaning of abiding in Christ. What does it mean to abide in Christ? What does Jesus mean by this picture? And this is, this is the metaphor. It's an extended metaphor. Jesus uses the picture of a, a vine and its branches to teach us some important, uh, some vital spiritual realities. This metaphor pictures two types of people. All right? Two types of people. The first that it pictures, are those that have received life from Christ, and as a result, they are bearing spiritual fruit. Those that have received life from Christ, as a result, they are bearing spiritual fruit. It says there in verse 1, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Fruit. So just like a, a, a branch uh, has, to, uh, has to draw the, the sap, the life uh, from uh, the vine, we uh, draw or receive life from Christ. And just like a, a branch has to be connected to the main vine to bear fruit, we have to be connected to Christ in order to bear fruit. It's a pretty simple uh, metaphor to understand. So this picture's those that have received life from Christ and as a result are bearing fruit. These, these folks that have received Christ as Lord and Savior, these folks that are saved, are connected to Christ. And as a result, they've experienced life. And as a result of experiencing life, they are bearing fruit in their life. Everybody got that? That's, that's group number one. The second type of person that this metaphor pictures is the person who professes to be in Christ but is not saved. The person who professes to be in Christ but is not saved. Look what it says in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does, not, does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So notice there, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now you need to understand, in case you go read some, some book about this or some study Bible about this passage, there are different opinions or different views, different interpretations about what it means that every branch in me does not bear fruit, he takes away. The first is the view I just share with you, that this pictures someone who is, is close to the things of Christ, who even professes to know Christ, but they're not truly Christians. They're, they're mouth professors, they're not heart possessors. And the evidence that they're not truly saved is they're not bearing fruit. Because what did Jesus say down in verse 8? By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So if fruit is the proof that you are truly a disciple, then fruitlessness is the proof that you are not truly a disciple. And so that's the first major view. And the reason some people struggle with this is because of the phrase in me. They say what well, it says Every branch in me, that must speak of a saved person. But the phrase in me in this passage does not mean it's a saved person. You can't take this in the same way that, that Paul uses the in Christ metaphor in Ephesians chapter 1. It's, it's, just a, it's just a word picture. And he's speaking here of branches that while close to Jesus, they're not truly connected to Jesus because they don't bear fruit. And so that's one major view of this passage. Now another view is this. Back in John 15, where he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, 
he takes away. Some people hone in on that word, takes away. The word is iro, and it can be translated different ways. It can be translated takes away, or it can be translated lifts up. And I read a book years ago by Bruce Wilkinson called Secrets of the Vine. He was the the gentleman that wrote Prayer of Jabez. Remember that book? Little hardback book. And he also wrote another book after that called Secrets of the Vine. And I first came across this interpretation, that book, and he said, what this means is, if someone is, is, is fruitless, then, then what God does is, is he, he's like a good, a good gardener, a good vine dresser. He comes along, and, and he uses this metaphor from, from, true, um, from, from real life, from people that tended grape, grape arbors. He said they come and they, they wash off the, 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 the vine that's fallen on the ground, and it's fruitless. They wash it off, and they pick it up and tie it back to the arbor, and then it begins to produce fruit again. And so what he's saying is that this speaks of a Christian that's just going through a period of, of fruitlessness, but God comes along gingerly, washes them off, and, and restores them so they can, again, they can begin to bear fruit again. I don't hold to that view, and here's the reason I don't. I don't because of what the Bible says in verse 6. Jesus says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So to me, that verse settles it. The fruitless branches in verse 2 are gathered up in verse 6 and burned, which is a picture, I believe, of eternal judgment. And so verse 6 doesn't look like anything like lifting up and washing off and tying back to the arbor. It looks like, hey, these branches are fruitless. They're not truly connected to Jesus, so they will be cast away, away from the vine, away from Jesus. I believe this speaks of eternal punishment. So I believe that the fruitless branches picture those who profess to be in Christ but are not saved. And, and a good example of this is Judas, Right? Jesus had 12 disciples, and Judas looked like a disciple, talked like a disciple. He spent a lot of time with Jesus, spent a lot of time with the other disciples, but he was not truly saved, was he? He, he ended up betraying the Lord Jesus. Satan entered into him uh, because I believe he was open to Satan's leadership, and he did some, some evil things. So, so I believe Judas is a good example of someone that... that perhaps from afar, looks like a Christian, you know, uh, smells like a Christian, talks like a Christian, so they must be a Christian, right? Well, not necessarily. If you look there in your notes, listen to this. Not everyone that says they are Christians have truly received life from Christ. That's important. Not everyone who says they are Christians have truly received life from Christ. Saying you're a Christian does not make you a Christian. Amen? Amen? Doesn't. Who, who makes you a Christian? Jesus makes you a Christian. When you place your faith in him, he forgives you and transforms you and reconciles you to God. Jesus is the one that saves. Just saying you're a Christian does not make you a Christian. Those that the Father takes away, back to verse 2, are those that will receive eternal judgment because they are not true followers of Christ. It says it right here, this quote from D.A. Carson The transparent purpose of the verse is to insist that there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. Let me say that again. There are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of Christianity. The alternative is dead wood. So did you hear what he just said? Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of Christianity. That's why Paul says over in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. You know the Bible says that? It says we're supposed to examine our lives. Say, okay, 
Am I truly born again? Is there evidence in my life? Is there fruit in my life that would lead me to believe that I have truly been converted, changed by Jesus, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God? And if, there, if you look at your life and there's no fruit, there's no concern for the things of God, no concern for Jesus Christ, you're just doing your thing, if there's no fruit, there's probably no Jesus. Because fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. So what about someone, because I hear the phrase all the time, once saved, always saved, right? Once saved, always. What about someone that... Um, that you know calls himself a Christian and they're coming to church and uh, and they're doing Christian things and they're hanging out with Christian folks, but then they just go haywire. They go off the map and they just turn their back on God. and And I've heard people say, "Well, once saved, always saved." That that person is uh, you know you know they're in a, a backslidden state for fifteen years, but but you know they were truly saved, so they're still saved. Listen to me. A saved person doesn't run from God for fifteen years. Do you hear what I just said? And you say, wait, does the Bible teach that? Well, look, look over in 2 John, near the back of your Bible. You've got 1 John, then you've got 2 John, which is only one chapter long. And look what it says in 2 John, verse 9. 2 John, verse 9. Again, there's only one chapter, so that's why I didn't give you the verse reference. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide, does not remain in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Hear what he just said? If someone walks away from the teachings of Christ, they are, they are proving they're not his. They didn't have God in the first place. It's not that they were saved and then lost their salvation. It's that they never were saved in the first place. So we need to understand the Bible does clearly teach eternal security. Clearly, once you know Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, uh, the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible clearly teaches eternal security. But that does not mean that we look at someone that is, is rebelling against God in an unrepentant state that cares nothing about the things of God, no conviction in life, and say, well, you know, they prayed a prayer years ago, so they're, they're going to go to heaven when they die. The Bible gives us no warrant to believe that. By their fruitlessness... They are proving they are not disciples of Christ, true disciples of Christ. So that's kind of hard teaching. It is, but we've got to come to grips with what the Bible says, what that Bible actually says, so that, listen to me, we won't have people playing games with God or people coasting through life thinking they're saved when they're not. That's dangerous business, right? Because if you die and you're not saved, you spend eternity in hell separated from God. And that's awful. And so the the loving thing that we can do is to say, hey, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Is there fruit in your life? And so this metaphor pictures these two types of people. Those that are truly saved, connected to Christ, bearing fruit as a result, and those that are not truly saved that will be cast into the fire. Now, what does it mean then when Jesus says, abide in me? Again, this metaphor, the, the, you have the vine and the branches, the branches can't get the vine. What does that mean to abide in the vine, to abide in Christ? Let me give you this statement. To abide means to enter into a relationship with Jesus and then to maintain close fellowship with Jesus. 
So you have to be connected to him. Union with Christ is what it means. When you place your faith in Christ, you're united to Christ. But then, after you're united to Christ, abiding means that you, you maintain, you seek closer and closer fellowship with him. That's what the word abide means. If you translate the word abide literally, it means to remain or to stay. That's what the word means. So Jesus, hey, remain with me, stay with me, stay connected to me, stay close to me. So how do I know if I'm abiding? If you've entered entered into a relationship with Jesus through faith, you're saved, and you are seeking growing closeness with him, you are abiding in Christ. It speaks of a, and this is why this passage is so important, it speaks of a deepening communion with Jesus. And who doesn't want that? If you're saved and you hear the phrase, deepening communion with Jesus, your ears ought to perk up, right? I mean, how can I go deeper with Jesus? How can I know him better? How can I know? It's the cry of Paul in Philippians 3 where he says, all the other things I thought were important, I count them as rubbish when compared to the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then in verse 10 he says, I want to know him and the, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul's saying, I want to know Christ more and more and more. Even if I have to suffer to do it, I want to know him better. Pretty awesome, isn't it? And so this abiding speaks of this, this, this growing communion, this growing closeness with Jesus. Warren Wiersbe has a way of just summing things up. I love the clarity of his language. He writes, what does it mean to abide? It means to keep in fellowship with Christ so that his life can work in and through us to produce fruit. That's what it means to abide in Christ, to know him personally, to be saved, and then to to maintain close fellowship with him. Now look at me real quick. You know, again, eternal security, you know that once you enter into a relationship with Jesus, nothing will ever separate you from that relationship. Amen? Eternally secure in Christ. And that's not because you're good. It's because he's good, right? But as a Christian who has a relationship with Christ, your fellowship can be hindered. Your, your closeness to him. Has there been a time in your Christian life when you felt far or distant from God? or went through kind of a dry season of your Christian life, that deals with the issue of fellowship. And so we're going to get into this passage uh, and talk about abiding so we can seek a deeper, closer fellowship with him. So that's the meaning of abiding in Christ. Now let me give you just two promises for abiding in Christ. Two promises for abiding in Christ. The Bible promises some stuff in John 15. Some, some resources, if you will, that are going to help you with this endeavor. I love how the Bible calls us to do our part. The Bible calls us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness over in 1 Timothy chapter 4, right? So the Bible says, do your part. Do what I've called you to obey. But the Bible also shows us how God always does his part. And listen, we can't, I didn't, this is extra. We can't, do our part unless God does his part first. God doing his part enables us to do our part. And God always does his part perfectly, so we always have the resources we need to do our part. Isn't that awesome? And so this passage speaks of God doing his part to help you, to give you resources to abide. So what are the promises that we can cling to when it comes to abiding in Christ? The first one is not very pleasant. Pruning. 
pruning. Here it is. Pruning is promised for Christians. That'll bless you, won't it? Pruning. Look what it says in John 15, verse 1. I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I love that picture. You have the vine who's Jesus, the branches. That's us, true believers in Christ. And then you have the vine dresser. And this picture's God as this, as this gardener, you know, cultivating, working, uh, moving throughout the, the vineyard for the good of the vine and the branches. And so God here is pictured as a, a loving gardener, a, a, a tender vine dresser. And if you ever had a garden before, you know how much attention it takes, right? It takes a lot of attention. And so this verse reminds us that God gives, he devotes his attention to this union, this, this abiding between us and Christ. Pretty awesome, right? So what does the vine dresser do? Well, look in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I believe that speaks of eternal judgment. All right, Those that die separated from the vine who are not truly saved, they experience eternal judgment. But then he says, every branch that does bear fruit, those that are truly connected to the vine, he prunes that it, that it bear more, that it may bear more fruit. And so if, if you've ever gardened before, you understand, uh, or, or grown flowers or, or tree, you, you understand that a pruning process has to, has to take place, cutting back uh, different branches so that they can grow and flower and produce more fruit. And, and pruning is a, is, a, is a cutting away or a cutting back, which is not real pleasant, right? I mean, what, what does pruning mean for the Christian? L- look at me. It means pain. It means pain. And God will use pain in our life for our good. And so, how does God prune us? I'm going to give you two ways God's going to prune you, all right? Number one is is through affliction. Affliction. That means God will either cause or allow some type of trial or hardship in your life. Now, turn over to Psalm 119. I want to show you this. Psalm 119. I want to show you why affliction is a good thing. Psalm 119, verse 67. I'm going through Psalm 119 right now in my, my personal quiet time. And it's, it's all about the Word of God and it's awesome. Look in Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. I wasn't doing what I needed to do. But now, what happens? I keep your Word. And then skip down to verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. In other words, God, when you allowed affliction into my life, it made me more dependent upon you and more desperate for you. All of a sudden, now that I'm going through this affliction, I'm reading your Bible. That's what he says. It's good that I was afflicted that I might get into your word. I started looking for some answers and looking for you and looking for some comfort and looking for some guidance. And the affliction was good because it took me from going astray and got me back on the path of doing what I ought to do, which is abide in Christ. And so God will use affliction to prune us, to make us uncomfortable, to, to make us more dependent upon Him, to get back on the right path. Th- those times we're busy and we're distracted, God will use affliction to get our focus back on Jesus, right? He does that. There's another way that God prunes. 
Not just affliction. By the way, this isn't, these aren't notes. Just write affliction down underneath pruning. But the second way God prunes is through discipline. Through discipline. Look over in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, New Testament book of Hebrews. Look in verse 7. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. The writer of Hebrews here says, It is for discipline that you have to endure, uh, that you have to endure, God is treating you as sons. Now, don't, don't forget that phrase. God is treating you as sons. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. He's going to treat you like a child, like his child that he loves. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and lip? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our what? For our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Sounds like pruning, doesn't it? But later, now watch this, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That ties it into John 15. Discipline is the same as pruning. It helps us bear more fruit. Here it mentions the fruit of righteousness. And so one of the ways that God will prune us is by disciplining us. And and, and discipline is when God gets our attention so that we will get on the right path. He will stop going on the wrong path, get us on the right path. That's what discipline is all about. And it's all an extension of his love. When I tell my children, don't go play in the road, is that because I mean... Is that because, you know, I just want to take away all their fun? No, it's because I don't want them to get run over by a car. And if they go play in the road and I have to discipline them to get their attention, is that mean or is that love? It's love. It's the same with God. When God disciplines us, he does it from a father's love for us. It's always good when he disciplines us. So wait, how do I know... If what I'm going through is affliction or discipline, it's a good question, isn't it? I believe that most of the time, this isn't, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to discern these things, but let, let me just give you kind of some things to think about. I believe that, that discipline will be accompanied by conviction. In other words, the Holy Spirit in you will point out an area in your life that needs to be addressed, an area of neglect, and you'll, you'll just know hey, God is getting my attention on this issue. And so God will accompany, I believe, discipline with conviction to show you there is a particular area in your life that needs to be addressed. But sometimes we can go through affliction that has nothing to do with with God's discipline. It can just be because we live in a sin-cursed world, right? We live in a fallen world, and hard things happen in this life, and God allows them, and he allows them for our ultimate good, for his purposes. And all of that, affliction, discipline, pain, It's all for our good. He prunes us so that we can bear more fruit. Now, let me give this quote from R. Kent Hughes. This is awesome. 
This really encourages you if you ever find yourself going through a pruning process, or maybe you're going through a pruning process right now. God's doing something to prepare you for the next season. Listen to what R. Kent Hughes writes. God's hand is never closer than when he prunes the vine. Isn't that an awesome thought? The, the, the vine dresser's hand is never closer to the vine than when he's pruning. And even though pruning can be painful, in that moment, God is so close to you. During those times of severest cutting wind to us, he may have seemed to have departed. He is the closest. His pruning may pain us, but it will never harm us. Did you hear that? His pruning may pain us, but it will never harm us. When the gardener does his pruning well, he leaves little more than the vine. Similarly, the more we are pruned, the more of Christ there is in our lives. I like that. I like that. And so pruning is not fun, but pruning is a good thing. And God has promised, if you are truly connected to the vine, if you are, if you are truly saved, if you are my child, I will prune you so that you can bear more fruit. But there's a second promise here. Not only pruning, but presence. Presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, not P-R-E-S-E-N-T-S. All right? Presence. Look what it says in John 15. And if you're just kind of reading through this passage quickly, you, can, you might even miss this little phrase. But look what it says in verse 4. Oh, this is so good. Jesus says, Abide in me. Now watch this. And I in you. In other words, Jesus is saying, You can bet that as you are abiding in me, you can bet your bottom dollar I am abiding in you. you. I'm calling you to do your part, but you need to know I'm doing my part. I will remain with you. I will be close to you. I will be, I will be there with you through it all. And so in this verse, Jesus is speaking of his presence. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Now remember, the disciples needed to hear this, right? Because he was about to, to die and be resurrected and ascend back to heaven, and he would no longer physically be present with them. They needed to remember, as we seek to abide in Christ, he is abiding in us. He's with us. He'll never leave us. He's with us until the end of the age. And so here's the promise that you can bank on when it comes to abiding. Jesus is with you. He's not going anywhere. He's with you. He's doing his part. And if you draw near to him, guess what? He'll draw near to you, James says. If, listen, if you'll take a step towards Jesus, he will come running for you. Remember the prodigal son? You remember that, that picture? The son's off in a distant land, and, and this is extra too. He's off in a distant land, and he, and he wastes the, the inheritance from the father, and he comes to his senses. He knows he's wasted his life, and he's, he's, he's returning home, and he's, he's practicing this speech of repentance, and, and he's worried about how the father might respond, and the father's looking for him. And when he sees the, the son walking up the, the, the road towards the house, the father, in a very undignified manner, which would have been unusual in the first century, the father begins to run to embrace his son. If you take a step towards Jesus, if you say, I want you more, I want to know you more, I want to go deeper with you, if you take a step towards Jesus, he will come running to you because he promised as you abide in him, he will abide in you. Amen? It's good stuff. Presence. And so this idea of abiding in Christ is not something we do alone. God is with us in it all. God's pruning and he's present and he's working. He's helping us. Apart from him, verse 5, we can do nothing. And so he gives us the resources. He gives us the wherewithal to, 
to remain in Christ, to abide in Christ, to stay close, closely connected to Christ. But third, now let's get real practical. So wait, all that sounds good. But how do you practically, how do I wake up on Thursday morning and abide in Christ? How do I do this? All right, how, how does this look in the Christian life? Well, I want to answer that question of how we abide in Christ. And there are four things, and they come straight from the text. Number one, consistent interaction with the Bible. Consistent interaction with the Bible. Look what it says in verse 7. If you abide in me, and he gives us a little statement, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So as you're enjoying this relationship, you're praying, and I'm answering your prayers, make sure that your abiding is characterized by my word remaining in you. The way you remain in Christ, the way you abide in Christ, is to have his word consistently abiding in your life. And so let me say it like this. You will never... You will never enjoy closer communion with Jesus if consistent Bible interaction is not a part of your life. It's just that simple. It's just that it's all over the pages of Scripture. You, you, you just can't know God more apart from His Word. God wrote a book, right? And He wants us to read it and 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 saturate ourselves with it. And so we need consistent interaction with the Bible. I'll just tell you this. Um, for years, even in, in pastoral ministry, for years, my Bible reading time was haphazard. And by that I mean, uh, I would just, I'd read a little bit over here, and I'd say, well, I want to read over here. And I'd read a little bit over here, and, and uh, I'd read this verse one day, and maybe this passage the next day. And I'd say, well, I want to read back over here. And, and I was just kind of you know, kind of all over the place in, in, in the Bible. And I was reading the Bible, and, and, and God certainly used that in my life in, in certain ways. But when I began to discipline myself to make sure I was reading all of God's Word every year, I began to grow by leaps and bounds. There, there's nothing I've done as a Christian that's been more impactful on my life than reading through the entire Bible in a year. And you know what? I've come to realize it's just not that hard. If you just have a plan and you just read a little bit every day, it's just not that hard. Uh, and, and, and what happened is, instead of it just being a, a discipline and something I, 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 I did or something I do, it became a delight. And now I'm telling you, my, my favorite time of the day is at my dining room table with a cup of uh, Nantucket blend curry coffee and a little cream, a little Splenda, and, and, and my Bible open and my Bible reading plan there. I know where I read last, the day before. I know where I'm reading today, and I check it off as I go. And in my Bible reading plan, I read from four different places in the Bible. I'm reading two places in the Old Testament, two places in the New Testament. I'm telling you, I just cannot wait to get there in the morning and just meet with God. It's just awesome. And I'm telling you, I, I'm a changed person because of it. The past, I don't know, four years, I've, I've read through the Bible every year. And it's changed me. It's changed my walk with God. It, it's, it's, it's been impactful in my life. And so I'm not saying you have to do what I do, but here's what I'm saying. You need to have some process in place where you are consistently in the Word. That makes sense? And I think it's good to, to make sure you're reading all the Word, at least every couple years at least. You can take a Bible reading plan and divide it into two and read, do half of it one year, half of next year. And you read through the Bible in two years. That's fine. That's fine. But at least you know, hey, at some point in the next couple of years, the next year, I'm going to read Leviticus. And I'm going to read, you know, Habakkuk. And I'm going to read 
Joel, and, I, and I'm going to read Second John, and, and I'm, I'm going to read Numbers, and, and I'm going to read you know, Ecclesiastes, and all these, they're wonderful. These books are powerful, but you've got you've to discipline yourself to make sure you're reading them, okay? You just can't imagine what a difference it'll make. So as your pastor, because I love you and you know I love you, I, I, just, I can't encourage you enough to get some kind of process in place to read the Bible consistently so that you are exposing yourself to the entire counsel of God. There's nothing magical about a year. We work on, you know, the earth going around the sun. So that's kind of, we're, we're kind of wired with that time that God set up, the earth spinning, going around. So that year works great for me. Make it a year and a half. Make it two years. Make it half a year. I don't, whatever. But, but consistently, consistently get into the Word of God. And if you'll do it, I promise you, it'll become the highlight of your day. It really will. And you will not be able to wait to get to that moment and read God's Word. So, consistent interaction with uh, the Bible. Can't recommend that highly enough. Number two is prayer. And it's interesting, when it comes to, to the Christian life, it, it just kind of all comes back to the Word of God and prayer, doesn't it? It just does. Look what it says in John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever... Isn't it interesting? In the context of abiding, he says, ask me for stuff. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And so there's, there's mystery to prayer, but it's clear that in the, in the process of our abiding in Christ, he wants us to ask him for things. He wants prayer to be a key element, a key characteristic of our journey with Christ. And so read the Bible and pray. Think about it like this. When you read the Bible, God's talking to you. When you pray, you're talking to God. Pretty simple, isn't it? So spend a few moments every day. Let God talk to you, and then you talk to God. Read the Bible and pray. And there, there's, I mean, I could do, we're going to do a study one day on prayer. But, but, but just very quickly, there, there are two types of prayer that I want you just to put in, in your mind. The first is what I call consecrated prayer. It's when you get alone with Jesus and you're just talking to him. The inner room, Matthew 6, close the door behind you, private time, just seeking the face of Christ, praying. Uh, that's important, but also conversational prayer is important. Over in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul writes, pray continually or pray without ceasing. And so maintain an attitude of prayer throughout the day. Pray between meetings. Pray on your commute. Talk to God about what's going on in your life. You'll be amazed at how God will, will draw close to you in your prayer life. And so how do you abide in Christ? You pray. Consistent interaction with the Bible and prayer. And here's what I've learned. And listen, I've been in seminary classes. I've read, I'm have read. i reading a book right now on prayer. I just finished a book on prayer. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of always reading something on prayer, trying to do that. But the, but the best way to learn how to pray is just to pray. It just is. I, I, there's, just, there's no substitute for that. You can read all you want to and not pray one minute more than you were praying before. The best way to learn how to pray is just to talk to God. Be honest with Him and transparent. Remember who He is. Remember who you are. Remember the good news of the gospel that reconciled you to Him so you could talk to Him. And then just pray. And so prayer is, a, is a, a, an important part of abiding in Christ. Third, and this is interesting, a growing comprehension of His love. I believe that we'll grow closer to Christ as we understand His love better and better. Now look what it says in verse 9. Verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so 
have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now he's going to tell us in a minute that obedience is a part of this. We'll talk about obedience in a moment. But isn't it interesting that he says, abide in my love? What an interesting phrase. Remain in me, remain in my love. So we need to understand something of his love. And when we understand more and more about his love, it motivates us to love him more. That's how it works. And and let me show you this. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul prays a prayer here. We're going to land the plane in a minute, but I'm circling the runway right now, okay? Look what it says in Ephesians 3, verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees. So that's a posture of prayer. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So he's saying, I'm praying that you'll be stronger on the inside. He's praying for our spiritual lives. Okay, everybody got that? Now, why does he want us to be stronger? Why does he want us to have a stronger inner man or inner woman? Well, he says there, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why does he want that to happen? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. Notice that, strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul's saying, I'm praying that you'll be stronger on the inside so that you can comprehend in a greater way how much Jesus loves you. Isn't that amazing? He's praying here that they would understand the love of Christ better. And, and notice the connection there in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When you understand the love of Christ, you'll experience his fullness. That abiding, that closeness, that intimacy, when you understand his love. And so I believe that you and I need a a growing comprehension of his love. Now we know Jesus loves us. It's the first song we learned growing up. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me. So it's a wonderful song. But did you know as a Christian, you can grow in your comprehension of his love? I think as, as, as we daily get in the Word, we daily pray, we daily gaze at the cross on which the Prince of Glory died, it reminds us of who we are, who Jesus is, what He did for us, the good news of the Gospel, and, and it gives us a, a growing understanding of His love for us. And if you will grow in your knowledge of His love, you can't stay the same. Because His love is perfect, it's unfailing, it's unconditional. His love is amazing. Amen? There's a fourth way that you abide in Christ. Consistent interaction with the Bible, prayer, growing comprehension of his love, but but fourth is obedience. Obedience. Look in verse 10 of John 15. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So he's telling us how how we can obey him to understand his love in a greater way. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And so he's clear here that one of the ways we stay close to Jesus is through obedience because disobedience causes causes distance in our closeness to Christ, distance in our fellowship with Christ. And so obedience helps us to stay close to Jesus because here's what obedience says. I want you to hear me on this. A lot of people think God's commands are just kind of just say, well, 
he decided he didn't like this, so don't do that, and he wants you to do this, so do that. And it's, you know, God's just kind of up there kind of trying to take away all of our fun. Listen to me. God made us. He's the creator, and so he absolutely knows what's best for us. And his commandments are not to restrict us or take away some level of enjoyment. His commandments are to set us free and give us life. Over in 1 John 5, the Bible says his commandments are not burdensome. He doesn't give them to us to weigh us down. He gives them to us to set us free. If you want to experience real abundant life, obey God. Obey God. And and you'll experience joy in that, uh, fulfillment in that, closeness to Christ in that. Because here's the deal. This is what I want to say earlier. When you obey Jesus, here's what you're saying. I trust you. I trust that what you say is best. I trust if you say I shouldn't do that, I'm not going to do it. I trust if I need to do this, I'm going to do it. When you obey Christ, you're saying I trust you. And when you say I trust you, you're maintaining that close fellowship with Jesus. See how that works? Because when you disobey, at the root of all disobedience is this. God, my way is better. What I want is better than what you called me to do. And that is communicating to God, I don't trust you. And it's hard to maintain close, close fellowship with one that you do not trust. So obedience. You know, talking to our kids, Claire and I find ourselves using this phrase more and more as we, as we give them uh, expectations and, 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 and rules we, we find ourselves saying, because sometimes for their limited perspective, they don't understand why we're giving them the rule. They don't understand all you know, what's going on out there in the world. But we have to say something like this, trust us. Trust us. We, we, we know some things you don't know about life. And, and we're giving you this, this rule for a good reason. Trust us. And, and then what God's saying to us when he gives us his commandments? Trust me. I know what's best for you. Trust me. And if you want to be close to Jesus, trust him and do what he says. That's the way you communicate your love, by the way. Over in John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. All right? That's how you demonstrate your love for me. So how do you practically abide in Christ? Read the Bible, pray, ask God to show you more of his love for you, and then just obey. Just, just obey. Just be just be. Just be a Jesus freak. Be radical. Just do what he tells you to do. Don't worry about what other people think or say. Just do what he tells you to do. All right? And you'll experience that level of closeness and communion with him that, that few are. Now, number four, very quickly, the results of abiding in Christ will be done, and I'll take questions. The first result of abiding in Christ is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Look in verse 5 of John 15. This is, to me, the key verse in this whole passage. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. But he's saying, if you abide in me and I in him, and he always does his part, he says, that person will bear much fruit. So, if you are maintaining close fellowship with Jesus, daily close growing communion with Christ then you will be fruitful. Christ will bear fruit through your life. Now, the, a big question is, what, what does fruit look like? What does it mean to have fruitfulness in your life? Well, let me use several examples. Very, we're not going to turn all the verses, but the first one is winning others to Christ. Certainly, 
sharing the gospel, seeing someone saved, or planting the seed of the gospel. Even if they don't get saved, you've planted the seed there. That's fruit, right? The gospel's going forth. That's, it talks about that in Romans 1.13. Christian character, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. Those are fruits of the Spirit. Those are, are fruits that, that God uh, bears in our life through our abiding in Christ. And so it speaks of Christian character. Good works, Colossians 1.10. And that kind of covers everything. Anything done for the glory of God is a good work. Helping someone that has a need. Feeding someone that's hungry, clothing someone that doesn't have uh, adequate uh, clothes, uh, visiting someone in in prison. These these good works, sharing Christ, um, giving to the expansion of the gospel, praying for someone that has needs in their life, being a prayer warrior. All these things are good works, and and good works are part of the fruitfulness that Christ will bear through our lives if we just stay close to Him. Now, and listen to me on this. If, if you'll just stay close to Jesus, you don't have to try to do all these things. He'll just do it through you. It'll come naturally. You don't have to have a checklist. Okay, today I'm going to do this, 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 and this. What, what happens is you abide in Christ, and He just begins to do it through you. He just begins to bear fruit through your life. And, and the last one there under fruitfulness is praise. Hebrews 13 15 speaks of the fruit of our lips, praise, a sacrifice of praise to God. Uh, when, you are, when you are abiding in Christ, staying close to Christ, there will be a natural, uh, there will be praise on your tongue. You, you'll be grateful for God and, and you want to glorify Him with your mouth. Fruitfulness. Secondly, the second result of abiding in Christ is joy. Look in John 15, verse 11. John 15, verse 11. These things I've spoken, what things? abiding, all right? This whole metaphor. These things I've spoken to you, I love this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Listen to me. That verse is it's just breathtaking. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you my joy if you'll abide in me. And he's got a lot of joy. Do you know what Jesus was doing before creation? before there was a heaven and an earth or an Adam and an Eve or a Garden of Eden, you know what Jesus was doing? He was experiencing perfect joy in perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit. From eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have existed in perfect communion and joy. And when He invites us into fellowship with God, He's inviting us into that joy. Isn't that awesome? That joy that's been around forever, he's inviting us into that kind of communion with God. And so he said, I have joy I'll give you, and if you'll abide in me, your joy will be made full. In other words, let me say it like this. You may want to write this phrase down. The measure of your joy is directly connected to the quality of your abiding. The measure of your joy is directly connected to the quality of your abiding. In other words, if you are focused on abiding in Christ, your joy will be made full. Jesus just said it here. But if abiding in Christ is not a, a daily priority for you, don't be surprised if you wonder where your joy is gone. This promise of joy, this vision of joy that Jesus gives us in verse 11 is for those that abide in Christ. So the, the measure of your joy is directly related or connected to the quality of your abiding. You know what I think I see in a lot of folks' lives? And maybe it's busyness. 
Maybe it's just weariness with, with all that's going on in our culture and, and our world. Maybe it's just, just apathy, spiritual carelessness. Um, maybe it's just hardship. I don't know, but, but you don't see a lot of people these days, even those that name the name of Christ, walking around with just joy. I'm not talking about fabricated happiness. I'm talking about a deep abiding joy that circumstances can't touch. No matter, yes, we all go through difficult things, but you still have joy because you know God through Jesus Christ and every day you're deepening your communion with Him, you're abiding in Him, and you know, listen, you know if you've got Jesus, you've got enough. Amen? You've got enough. And so one of the results of abiding in Christ is joy. And then here's the last thing, and the most important. God is glorified. Look in verse 8. Verse 8, we'll be through. By this my Father is glorified, Jesus says, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So why should you abide in Christ? So you bear much fruit. What happens when you bear much fruit? God is glorified. People see the difference that God makes in someone's life through Christ. And so when people see that, who gets the glory? God does. And that's what it's all about. The, 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 the major thrust of this passage is abide in Christ so you can bear fruit for the glory of God. And the major thrust of the Bible is God deserves all the glory. It's all about Him, right? It's all about Him. And so if you want to glorify God with your life, if you want God to be glorified, if you want to make much of Jesus with your life, if you want God to, to be made more famous through your life, if you want His renown to go forth through your life, abide in Christ. You'll bear fruit, God will be glorified. The other night I was praying with my four-year-old daughter, Abby Faith, and, and I prayed something to, that, to God help us to glorify you with our lives or help us to give you glory in our lives, something to that effect. And she asked me this question. She said, Dad, what's glory? Not an easy question. Not an easy concept to explain to a four-year-old. And I said, I said glory is, is, is when we have a desire for people to know how great God is. That's what glory is. When we want to glorify God, what we're saying is we want other people to know how great God is. That's the best I could do in that moment. But that's what it is. If we want to glorify God, what we're saying is we want others to know how great God is. Right? That's what it means to glorify God. We want to know how, we want to make Him more famous with the way we live our lives and what we say and what we do. And so if you want to glorify God, abide in Christ. You'll bear fruit. The bearing fruit glorifies Him. So again, back to what I said at the very beginning. I believe this is one of the key passages in the New Testament. It really is. I, I think there are some secrets here that aren't really secrets because they're just right there in the Bible. If, you, if we just read them and, and begin to incorporate these things, I believe we will experience a level of Christian living that we've never experienced before for the glory of God. And that's what it's all about.